welcome back. I was about to sing then. I was like, oh, no, don't do it. Don't hurt the listeners' ears now. But no, on a serious note, welcome back to another episode of Black Women Rising Podcast. And today is all about the topic of fertility. And I know this is something that comes up so much, you know. We as women, we go through so much of our bodies when we go through treatment. And there can be so many after effects. And sometimes it can be things like early menopause or becoming infertile. I know for me personally, with my journey, I don't even remember it being spoken about when I was 17 about having children or freezing eggs or anything like that because of my cancer was so aggressive. That wasn't even something that was really brought up. And it wasn't until years after I'd finished my treatment they brought up the late effects and um, they send you off to go like see your egg count and stuff like that for you to kind of get a better understanding of your body and your chances, I guess, of conceiving. And then they give that that one bit of information that I hear from so many women, which is have a baby as soon as possible, like after you are obviously out of that danger zone, like have the baby as soon as possible. And it's like, well, great advice because of that there's a reason that you can go into early menopause but it really is such a big topic and it's really not spoken about enough but today we have an amazing lady called Karina and she's a mother to a daughter and triplet sons a podcaster a writer a speaker and my personal favorite a light worker And at the age of 33, Karina was diagnosed with breast cancer. Karina, lovely to meet you. How are you? I'm really good, thank you. Lovely to meet you too. Thank you, thank you. And we're so honoured to have you on this podcast with us. (laughs) No problem whatsoever. Now, we're going to jump right into it. Um, I literally just want to know, like, what was you doing like before you were diagnosed? What was life looking like for you? My life was, um, it was full on. Um, I was an accountant. Um, I was newly married and, you know, we were traveling a lot. And I guess doing those things that you do when you're in your 30s and, you know, you, you're sort of stable in your career. So you've got a good income and, you know, we bought our house and, things were really stable and steady and we were probably at a point in time where, you know, we were considering a family um, and, you know, doing all of those sort of things that I guess you think would be the normal things that you do when you get to 33, 34 and and you're married and, you know, in a loving relationship. So, so we were kind of just enjoying life, you know, enjoying our friends and enjoying our circumstances and, and being pretty free, you know, we'd, the year before my diagnosis, we'd sort of quit our jobs and we'd, well, two years before we'd quit our jobs and we just yeah. traveled the world with our backpacks and, you know, we jumped out of planes and did all sorts yeah. of cool stuff just to make memories. So I think I was, you know, I was, I was living life, well, probably to the max um, in some areas, but yeah. I was also pushing myself really hard. You know, I, I was quite hard on myself in my career. Like I was always wanting to, you know, get the next promotion or get another pay rise. And, you know, I was very driven to be a successful accountant. So I guess it was probably a work hard, play hard kind of scenario that I was living in in my early 30s. Yeah, I love that you guys packed up and just decided to go traveling. 
That's amazing. Yeah. What was your favorite place that you went to? My favorite place. Oh, it. This is really hard. This. I think it's two. Um, I really loved going to Cambodia. I think it was a place that I had didn't expect it to blow me away in the way it did. But the people were just so wonderful. The history of that that country is incredibly sad, and yet there's so much love and you know joy amongst its people now, which is incredible. Yeah. But but you know I think New Zealand literally has got my heart for for the rest of my time on this earth. It's just the most <laughs> beautiful places, heaven on earth. It's people are gorgeous. The the, the landscape is mind blowing. We campervaned around New Zealand, my husband and I, and you know somehow we managed not to kill each other being in such a confined space twenty four seven. But um, you know we made some really really precious memories and. Actually, you know, I'm so glad that we did that. I was so nervous to leave my job because it's really unusual to do that, particularly in the South Asian community. Once you've got a good job, you do not leave it. Um, yeah. But I did, you know, and that was that was my husband pushing me. He was like, come on, let's do this. Let's do this. And now I look back and I think, thank God, you know, thank God we did, because yeah. some of the things we did, you know, I would not physically be able to do now because of cancer and everything that came after it. So, you know, those memories are so precious. And, you know, I always say to anyone, you know, anyone who's sort of coming out of uni or before they go into a real like, you know, profession that they have to commit a number of years to, I always say just pack your bags and go because home will always be here and you can always come back to home and you can always come back and find that job. But yeah. time just passes by you know and once you've had chronic disease you realize how precious time is and how precious memories are and how little everything else actually matters so for me you know it, it, our time here is all about making memories and mm. and creating those special moments and and you know it, it shouldn't take people to fall ill to realize that that's that's the most important thing in life you know yeah the, the money the job that that's all secondary to that I totally agree that's beautiful <laughs> so in up to your diagnosis and how was you diagnosed and you know take us through the journey of how you was diagnosed and what happened afterwards yeah so I was pretty um unaware of breast cancer before I was diagnosed so I didn't really know anything about the signs and the symptoms of it um my maternal grandmother had actually had two run-ins with breast cancer but as a family we never spoke about it um you know she, she only ever needed radiotherapy so I think in part it was not it it, it wasn't we didn't talk about it because we were ashamed yeah. of it or you know my my parents were ashamed of it but I just think no one talked about it because they didn't think it would happen to anyone else or they didn't think it was important enough to have a conversation around it. And I know my grandmother was very private and she didn't want anyone to talk about her or her disease. So we didn't have those conversations. And I was a teenager at the time and no one said to me, you know, actually you're, you, you've got breasts and you know, that means you've got a risk. And actually this is what we should all be looking out for when it comes to breast cancer. No one had those conversations. So, you know, I arrived at 33, my nipple became inverted and I sort of, I noticed it one day and just said to my husband, oh, that's really weird, isn't it? Like, I wonder what's done that. And I said to him, I wonder if I've worn a, like a really weird bra or a really like tight vest or something. And it's pushed my nipple in. Like, I wonder why that would happen. And I didn't think for a minute that it was something I should be concerned about. Yeah. And I left it probably for about two weeks. And he then at the, after two weeks, he said to me, I think you should get that looked at because that can't be normal. You know, yeah. two weeks with the nipple inverted, that just doesn't seem right. 
And so I thought, well, if he's flagging it as something I might need to be worried about, I should probably, you know, get this looked at. So it was a Sunday that I decided to sit down and Google, you know, what could an inverted nipple be? And then, you know, I put that into Google and the first thing that comes up is breast cancer. Yeah. And the more and more you start looking and the more you start researching, you realize that, wow, this this is a real symptom of breast cancer. And then you start looking at all the other symptoms and realizing that actually I probably did have some of them. So I had had pain in my chest area. I'd had shooting pains going up and down my arm. But I always put that down to sort of I, I used to be quite a keen gym goer at the time yeah. I used to do weight classes and stuff and I just used to think to myself you know what like I probably just lifted too much weight this week and you know my arms are just achy a bit or you know yeah. like too much weight on my chest and I always had an excuse for you know always had another reason for why this pain was happening but as I sort of searched through Google and I was putting like all of these sort of two and twos together I was like whoa you know I have that nipple inversion and I have that chest pain and I have that armpit ache and started really quickly becoming very worried about what could possibly be going on with my body and the Monday morning I I rang my GP and I just said look I'm really concerned actually I've had this inverted nipple thought it was nothing it's been over two weeks and it's still the same if not worse and um you know I've been researching and asking Dr Google what this could be and it doesn't look good and the doctor on the phone just said to me, look, you know, don't worry about what you read on the Internet. You know, we'll, we'll see you and 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 uh, and get you checked out. But I don't you need to worry. You're so young. There's it's very unlikely that this could possibly be breast cancer. Um, and I said to her, look, is there any triage appointments? Can I come in you know, like this afternoon or whatever? And she just said, look, just book the next routine appointment. There's no urgency. Yeah. So I booked that. And at that time, that was about, I think it was about 10 or 12 days away, that next routine appointment. So spent the next couple of weeks just sort of continuously watching this nipple and, and realizing that it was actually inverting more and more as the days passed. Um, I eventually got to the GP and I was examined. And, you know, when you're that young and you've led a relatively healthy life, you don't have a GP who particularly knows you or your background. It's just whoever you sort of see on the day. So, yeah walked in I you know I didn't know this lady she didn't know me and told her what I was worried about and she said okay I'll examine your breast now um and she ran her hands over my chest and and did what she did and told me to put my clothes back on and just said look I I don't think you've got anything to worry about um I can't feel any lumps I think what's probably happened is you have a blocked milk duct um you're 33 you haven't had children it's probably you know that is what I would put my money on um, because it's highly unlikely that you got any sort of cancer. And by this point, I think I'd waited, you know, it was coming up to a month since I'd noticed the initial inversion and I was starting to get really stressed out about, you know, whether it was cancer or not. And so yeah. I just said to her, look, can you refer me anyway? Because I'm really nervous. And she just said, no, there's no point because even if we mammogrammed you, your breast tissue is too dense, we won't see anything. And, you know, I, I honestly don't think you've got anything at all to worry about. Just, you know, keep an eye on it. If it gets any worse in the next few weeks, come back to us. And just turned around wow. and I said to her, yeah. And I said to her, look, I've already waited four weeks and it hasn't got better. I don't think it's going to get better in the next two weeks. And I now am at the point where I don't want to leave your room until you refer me because I'm really yeah. scared and I want this second opinion. And she really sort of, she's tied her teeth and just said, oh God, I'll do it for you. But you know, you, you, there really isn't anything you should be worried about. And so she did the referral um, and in the next sort of 
10 days an appointment came through and I ended up at the breast clinic I sort of left from work and, and went and my nipple was still inverted and I was still getting these shooting pains and I turned up and I went on my own because a part of me wanted to believe that GP and believe that there was nothing wrong with me so I kind of think a part of me was convinced I'd just go in they'd tell me I'd be fine and I'd go back to work again yeah I went in the lady um who was a consultant um, asked me if she could examine my breasts. And I, you know, of course I said, yes. And so she sort of, she ran her hands over my chest and then she just turned around and said to me, have you come alone today? And I said, yeah, you know, my GP said, there's nothing to worry about. So, you know, I just sort of come here straight from work. And she said, oh, well, um, next time, could you please bring someone with you? And I thought, oh, the next time, like, why would she say there's a next time if there was nothing wrong with me? And so I said to her, um, I said that exact thing. I said, so why, why would there be a next time? And she yeah. said, well, um, you know, I'll be, I'll be totally honest with you. There's your, your nipple is inverted, which is a sign of breast cancer. And actually when I examine your breast, I can feel one, if not two lumps in your chest. Wow. And I said to her, how come last week, like a GP told me there was no lumps. And she just said, look, they're awkwardly placed. Maybe she didn't feel them. You know, maybe she missed it. But, yeah. but there's definitely some lumps in your breast. And, you know, I'm really concerned at this point in time. I want to um, do, you know, an urgent biopsy, mammogram, ultrasound. You know, I've got to get the works done on you. Um, I'm going to see if I can squeeze you in today. And, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, I was just like, what on earth has just happened? Because I've gone from being in denial to this is now a really real situation. And, you know, this doctor is running up and down corridors to see if she can find a time slot for someone to examine me. Yeah. Um, and that doesn't happen if no one's worried about you. So, yeah, um, yeah, she didn't, she couldn't find anything immediately. So she said to me, look, go back, go home, go to work, do whatever you've got to do. And I'm going to call you as soon as I can find someone to see you. So I went back to my desk and I was in a bit of a daze, really, and sort of just sat at my desk thinking, I don't really know what to do right now, you know, staring at an Excel spreadsheet, not doing much work at all. And about 40 minutes later, my phone rings and it was a secretary from the hospital. And she just said, look, we found an opening for a mammogram at Crawley Hospital. Can you get there within the next hour? So I said, yeah, of course I can. So I just said to my colleague, look, I've got to go. And obviously I didn't tell anyone what was going on. I just, oh, you know, I've just got to go and get a blood test done and I need to get it done today. So, you know, I'll see you guys tomorrow. Logged off, went to the appointment and, you know, it was just so bizarre having a mammogram done because I only ever thought older women had a mammogram done and, you know, I didn't know what to expect. And the lady who did it was so kind and gentle and she could see that I was really nervous and, you know, tried to put my mind at ease. But there was nothing that was going to ease my mind at that point in time until, you know, until we got the results of what it was that was going on inside me. Oh, so I had the mammogram on a Monday. Um, the Friday I was called in to have a biopsy and an ultrasound. And on that appointment, I decided to take my best friend with me. And I took her along and turned up at this appointment but the lady the doctor a sonographer whoever whatever it's called whoever she was called and she called me in and she had only read the GP notes she hadn't read the consultant's notes so she said to me oh why have you brought someone with you and I said the consultant told me not to come to an appointment on my own she said oh well that's a strange thing to say there's nothing wrong with you and I said I was told that I had something wrong with me and I'm here to have, you know, further tests and ultrasound and a biopsy because she can feel some lumps in my chest. And she said, no, there's no lumps in your chest. I've I've read the GP report. I said, yeah, but have you read the consultant's report? She goes, no, I haven't got that to hand. And I said, well, the consultant told me she felt two lumps in my chest. 
And then she continued just to sort of belittle me and my concerns a little bit. And she just said, oh, you're making the mountain out of molehill. There's nothing wrong with you. Your friend can wait outside. And I just said, but you're going to... Terrible. Yeah. And I said to her, you're going to do a biopsy on me when you get me in there. And I'd like my friend to be with me. She said, you're not going to have a biopsy. There's no lumps in your chest. I'm going to do a quick ultrasound to check everything's okay. And then I'll send you on your way. So I said to her, well, can you get the mammogram results out? Because I had that on Monday. And you should have those to hand. The lady told me on Monday that they'd be turned around in 24 hours. And she said, oh, oh, they're in the system somewhere, but I'm not worried about them. Um, And by this time, I was crying. I was so upset that she wasn't taking me seriously. Um, And so I just got on her bed and I just said to her, look, fine, my friend can wait outside. I guarantee you're going to call her in within five minutes of putting the ultrasound, within two minutes of putting the ultrasound on my chest. Yeah. So she laid me down on the bed and right as rain put the ultrasound on and literally seconds later just said one, to one of her colleagues yeah call her friend in so I, I and you know and I, I, by this point I'm actually really like pissed off yeah and, and so I just said to her girls you can do a biopsy now and it just turned into a bit of a you know you're right I'm wrong no empathy in this appointment and it was one of the most frightening times of my diagnosis you know to that point it was the scariest yeah. thing I've done a biopsy so she said, yes, I can see there is something of concern. So I will be doing a biopsy. You know, your friend is welcome to hold your hand, blah, blah, blah. So my best friend came in and just watched the screen as this lady took her biopsy samples. And she said to me, look, I'll take probably two or three um, samples. And she showed me the needle and said, this is what's going to happen. So I said, OK, fine. She went in. She ended up going in 11 times to take samples out of my chest. Yeah. And, you know, Every time she went in, I was counting in my head, just thinking that's the last one. But, it, but, you know, it just went on for ages. And we finished up and I sat on the bed and I just said to her, you know, so what happens next? And she said, oh, yeah, we're coming up to a bank holiday weekend. So I wouldn't worry about getting results anytime soon. You know, they're probably not going to get to you within the next two weeks because we're really busy. And I thought, oh, God, I'm like another two weeks of waiting. Like, this is just ridiculous. Yeah. And I said to her, you know, the consultant told me, though, if I asked you what you saw, you'd be able to give me an indication of what was going on. And she goes, yeah, I can. So I said, oh, well, could you tell me? And she just said, well, all I can say is that it doesn't look good. And that is all she said to me. And, and then she turned around and walked away. And luckily, I had my best friend there because, you yeah. know, I basically became like this rep who then knew that she had cancer you know there was there was no denying it that 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 was what was growing inside me by this point in time because of the number of tests and the number of samples and the number of scans and you know we walked out and I said to my friend I said look I think I've got cancer and she said Pri I'm not going to lie to you you know I looked on that screen and I think you have too because I've never seen it like a scan like that there was definitely something unusual in your chest and you know we grabbed a hot chocolate at the hospital cafe and we just sort of entered this surreal world of geez like from this point my life is never going to be the same again yeah we both now acknowledge that this disease is living inside of me and you know I just said to her look I think I'm going to lose my breast there's two lumps you know I'm only a c-cup as it is like how could there be any breast tissue beyond like the cancer at this point in time and she said well you never know you know it can do really really cool things with medicine and science and you might be able to keep your breast and you know we were we were already having these conversations about what sort of treatment we thought I would need and you know coming to terms with the reality of yeah what you know this is a cancer diagnosis and we need to yeah. wait for it sound like it was quite a traumatic experience yeah 
It was. And I think that's part of the reason why now I'm so passionate about, you know, this space and talking about young women with breast cancer and making us all aware of it. Because I think we're so, so quickly dismissed for our fears and concerns. And do you know what, if I'd walked out of that GP surgery, when she told me not to worry about it and came back two weeks or a month later, I could have, it's a difference between, you know, a stage three and a stage four diagnosis that, and I just think that's, you know, irresponsible on the behalf yeah. of the GP to send someone yeah, who's showing yeah. such symptoms away based on age so you know and, and that you know I guess that's that's why we're all here doing this awareness work because we know it's not an older person's disease and we know it's not a white person's disease we know it affects colored people we know we're you know as minority communities we are the least likely to ask for help when we need it and you know yeah. we're the least informed when it comes to signs and symptoms and that needs to change so so I had that appointment and 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 I walked away from there. And then that was a Friday. And, you know, bearing in mind that this lady had told me to wait two weeks before my results came out, I was again at my desk on a Monday and received a phone call from the hospital. And it was Monday morning before 10 o'clock. And this lady just said, um, we've got the results in from your biopsy. Can you come to clinic on Wednesday to discuss them with a the consultant? Yeah. And that just cemented the fact that I had cancer in my head because I thought, well, I was there on three o'clock on a Friday and now here we are 10 o'clock on a Monday morning being told I need to go and get my results. Like if this was good news, there's no way I'd be, you know, I'd be called in within, you know, one way. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. it's true. Yeah, and I went in and, you know, took my husband with me this time and just we sat down in this consultant's room and, you know, I my husband had been in denial he was just like there's no way it's cancer that this can't that I don't um, you know he just wouldn't believe this was it he just he just wanted to believe there was something else that was causing this and there was another reason and I by this time was convinced it was cancer so when he sat down and he said to me you have cancer I didn't I wasn't shocked and you know I didn't cry until I looked over at my husband and he was crying and then I cried yeah and then you know, my tears weren't for myself because I, I'd already figured that part of it out in my head and come to terms with having that disease. But what I hadn't quite thought about was the effect that it would have on him yeah. and the effect it would have on my relationship and yeah. my marriage and our plans for the future. And, you know, like, you know, in my community, in the Indian community, men are just, I don't know, they don't, they're not allowed to show their softness. And, you know, it's, it's weird that sort of, portrayed to be these strong figures in our lives but seeing him cry like that just made me realize how vulnerable we both were in this situation and how this wasn't just a disease that was going to affect me it was going to affect both of us yeah it's true and you know and it might affect whether we stayed together or whether we didn't stay together you know no one had the answers back then we just you know were full of fear yeah Um, no one knows what's coming no and you, you know you just you just have no idea how how this diagnosis is going to affect you so he you know he's been incredible throughout the whole thing and we walked out that day and you know the consultant had said to me look I think we'll get away with the mastectomy and radiotherapy I don't think you'll need chemotherapy and um I think I took real comfort in that because I sort of started to believe that if I had only radiotherapy I could conceal this and no one really has to know what I was going through and I could almost just like go through six months of treatment and be back to my normal self without having to make public my journey or my story. Yeah. And then the next week I went in, he had he did my mastectomy, took out my lymph nodes. That was done within seven days. And then I was called in again to have sort of the histology review um, appointment with him. 
and at that second appointment he said to me um I'm really sorry it's not great news we've taken you know obviously the, the breast removal was highly successful um, we've removed you know all visible traces of cancer but when we've removed your lymph nodes we've noticed that there's been a slight spread into your lymphatic system and he explained what that meant um and he said look you know you're you, you're still looking at um we believe a stage three cancer but because it's left your breast you will need to have chemotherapy um and we'll need to take out all of your lymph nodes in your left arm so um, I went back for surgery again after that, had all of my lymph nodes taken out. Yeah. Turn, it turned out that around 40 to 45% of my lymph nodes were tumoured. And then he, you know, broke the news that I needed chemotherapy to treat this. And it was when he said that, that, that for me, the floodgates opened and I fell apart. You know, I just thought I can't deal with chemo because that's so public and open yeah. and that's, you know, I'm I'm Indian and, you know, in the Indian community, your hair is your beauty. And like my mum had said that to me growing up, that, you know, don't cut your hair because your hair is your beauty. And, you yeah. know, when you get married, it's really important that you have long hair so we can do a lifestyle on your hair. And like there's so much, so much emphasis put on hair yeah. being the beauty that the thought of losing it was just unbearable. But that but that was gonna happen I guess that's where we ended up and we walked out of that hospital and I remember stopping in the car park and just falling to the ground and crying you know because all of a sudden this became bigger than me you know before before chemo was brought into the mix I really thought I could control the cancer and I could control how this would play out and yeah you know I was in the driving seat and the minute I was told I had to have chemotherapy, that turned, that was all gone, you know, like it becomes something that you have no control over and mm. something that you know is going to massively affect you and your life and and all your relationships. And, you know, so it's, it, it just became so much more real once I knew that I needed chemo to treat my breast cancer. So as, like, we know the topic of this podcast is about fertility, is that something that was discussed at any point? before you had treatment or was that yeah so as I sort of well yeah so I went in to see my oncologist um the head of treatment and he basically just decided well he discussed with me my treatment plan and he said look you know we're going to have these drugs yeah um you know this is what the plan is this many sessions and then he said to me and we do need to have a conversation about your fertility and your desire to have children yeah and like I wasn't surprised then because by this point I'd been on some online forums and I'd been reading about people having fertility preservation. Um, a family member had spoken to me about, you know, the risk of fertility loss through chemotherapy and stuff. So I'd become aware of it and done a bit of homework. And I said to him immediately, I said, you know what, if I live, I, I have to have children. Like I've never imagined a future without children. Yeah. And um, and you know, I said it's you know my top priority, second to being alive, like being a mum is probably my top priority. And so he said, okay, well there are a couple of options, you know, here. Um, my preferred option would be that we just get you on treatment immediately, and we use Zolidex to um, put your ovaries to sleep and hopefully preserve your fertility. Yeah. And I was like, I basically was turning thirty-four, and you know, he'd told me that 
I'd be on 10 years of um, tamoxifen or some form of hormone therapy. Um, and and in my head, I was like, look, if I have to wait 10 years, I'll be 43, 44. You know, even if I took a break at five years, I'd be late 30s. The likelihood of fertility coming back at that point, you know, it wasn't a risk I was willing to take. Yeah. So I said to him, look, I, you know, as much as you have faith in Zolodex saving my ovaries, I don't want to take that risk. And if there's a chance of going through IVF, I want to take that chance. And then he explained to me the risks of having, because my hormone, my cancer was eight out of eight on the progesterone and estrogen scoring. So it was 100% fed by hormones. Yeah. And um, he said, look, you've got a very hormonally sensitive cancer. Um, you've got a very aggressive cancer. It was a state, it was grade three. And um, he basically said, you know, that there are risks involved in you going through IVF. Now, it's up to you if you want to, you know, have the stats. And, you know, obviously, if you want to do it, I'm not going to say no, because there are people, you know, there are ways of doing IVF with the element of protection. But I have to warn you that there are risks involved. And I just look at that at this point in time, it's a risk I'm willing to take, because if I survive this, I don't want to be left unable to be a mum. And at that point, I only ever saw motherhood through through my own genetics. Yeah. But, you know, we went through that IVF process. The, the very next day, I was referred to a fertility clinic. And it was two days later, I started my IVF treatment. And the next 14 days were all about, you know, fattening up my egg reserve and collecting them fertilizing them and storing them in the freezer for a day in the future where one day you know we could take them out and look to become parents through them so mm. we we did that and you know I've said it on loads of loads of times when I talk about this that going through IVF ahead of chemotherapy is mentally absolutely mind-blowing creating a life when you don't even know if you're going to have a life beyond the next six months is just something that you know there needs to be more counseling for that because yeah. it is absolutely mind-blowing that you're that you go through this process that a lot of people come to you know IVF from they've tried to get pregnant and it's their last hope or yeah. you know, they're doing that in sort of I guess some form of a positive way that they're trying to create this baby because they want to have this life but for us it was like we'd never really considered you know infertility before cancer we'd never considered ever having to use a clinic to have a child and then bam there we were from okay you know what we haven't even tried naturally to have kids to here you go you're, you've just naturally created a set of embryos and you know if you're still alive in four or five years time you might well be a mum to them but there was so much uncertainty around that yeah of course so we created those embryos and we popped them in the freezer. And I remember getting a call on the day that they went into the freezer from the embryologist. And she just said to me, look, Queena, it's a really good result. And we collected 13 eggs. We fertilized 12 and we frozen 11. You should be really proud of yourself. And I wish you all the best with your upcoming treatment. And I just said to her, like, thank you and put the phone down. And I didn't really know what else to say because I was so afraid that I'd created these lives these maybe babies and I would never live to see them yeah some people think that like embryos are just cells or they're just you know they're just a fun, you know they're not babies or children but they're they're your maybe babies they're your hope they're your they're your everything because they're your last chance at motherhood 
so there was so much confusion in my mind at that point, you know, was should I attach to them? Should I not attach to them? Because what if I didn't live to see them come to life? There's just it was it was it was a really difficult time for me mentally. But but I'm very glad we did that because we went through chemo and, you know, all the rest of it. And and as we came out of the other side, my husband and I did start thinking about what would it look like if we chose to now try and have a family. Yeah. And did you did you try and actually first or was that you went straight into the process of doing the surrogacy? Um no, yes. Yeah, so we we didn't try because every time I asked my team, they told me the risks were too high to come off of my medication okay. in terms of cancer recurrence. Yeah. So um so the advice was um not to try to fall pregnant naturally from an oncology point of view. Okay. And then what happened um three years after my diagnosis, I was on holiday in Vancouver, started to feel really ill, unable to breathe, um, really chesty, really coughy, and ended up um, after a, you know a series of events in hospital very unwell and was eventually admitted to intensive care cardiac intensive care and I had been diagnosed with acute heart failure so what had happened was that the chemotherapy that I was giving in 2013 was cardiotoxic yeah. you know there wasn't any ongoing monitoring of my heart after my active treatment um, and none of us so I didn't know that this was a side effect and one day sort of wound up really breathless and realized that actually my heart had stopped functioning. I was um, in intensive care and we were told, well, my husband was told because I wasn't really conscious. Um, my husband was told that I would unlikely make it through the next 24 to 48 hours because I was so severely unwell um, that my heart had just given up and that he should call my family over to Vancouver to say their goodbyes um, because they didn't think I would make it. I then went into intensive care and received some amazing treatment from some you know, really, really clever medics. Yeah. And I did make it through 24 hours and I made it through 48 hours. But we were told a couple of times that, you know, you might get a week of life or you might get two years of life, but it's not really going to be much more than that. But, you know, here I am all these years. Yes, later, you're and, a fighter. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes you can defy the odds and, we got through that and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd been researching surrogacy in that time between my heart failure and my, um, in between the time of cancer and heart failure anyway, because it seemed the only viable route given my oncologist was telling me not to fall pregnant naturally and not to come off my medication. Yeah. But then when heart failure came knocking, like it was almost the final nail in the coffin for me ever considering being pregnant because my cardiologist was just saying, look, Karina, your heart function you know, when I was really poorly, my heart function had gone down to 6%. Um, and I literally wasn't able to oxygenate my own body. So, um, you know, he just said, look, it's not, you're not going to be able to do this naturally. Yeah. You know, you're going to need help if you need, if you want to become a mum, you're going to need help. And I said, look, I've already been looking into surrogacy. And, you know, I guess what you've just said has cemented my decision to become a parent in that way. So, that's what we did. And, you know, I'd become a part of um, online surrogacy communities. Um, I'd done my research. There were, you know, there were there were different ways of doing surrogacy. You could go internationally and, you know, have commercial agreements in place, or you could stay here in the UK and go through a surrogacy agency, or you could stay here in the UK and do independent surrogacy, which is where I decided to go. Um, and that simply means just... Um, joining a number of forums really so yeah. you know much like in the cancer community we've got forums where we you know we share pieces of ourselves that 
that you know our own family and friends might not know but strangers know really well yeah. there are surrogacy communities like that so you can start talking to people and you know talking not only to surrogates but to other intended parents to see where their journeys have gone and you know how they've panned out and you know find stories of hope that make you realize that this is a really viable route to parenthood so I joined all of those forums I shared my story I told everyone why we were there and you know I did look really hard for another Indian girl you know I just wanted to see someone the same skin color as me who'd been there and done that and managed to become a mum because you just thought you know we all want that that voice we can resonate with but I couldn't find her you know yeah and like I couldn't find that voice and that really saddens me I mean it still saddens me today that you know that people from my community don't necessarily think this is a route to parenthood um but it is you know and like so I stuck at it and got to know people and eventually got you know got to know um the person who ended up being my first surrogate quite well and um, well very well yeah. and her name was Ina um we we initially started talking actually when I was in Canada and um continued to talk when I came back to England and we met up um after a couple of months of talking online we met up in person you know we really liked each other my husband and her partner met up and we met her kids and you know actually everyone got on really well with one another and we started to go through a surrogacy agreement and um, so just to clarify, like in the UK, surrogacy is legal, okay. but there's no um, there's no enforceable contract or anything like that. So what people do is draw up an agreement, which basically says, look, if this was a legally enforceable contract, this is what each of us would expect of one another. Yeah. And you can talk about everything in that from, you know, the basics of what expenses you will pay your surrogate to, you know, how many times you'll try to conceive to what you will do if someone miscarries, what you will do in the event of a stillbirth, what you will do, you know, all sorts of eventualities, loss of fertility, loss of life. You, you have to talk about everything that could affect, you know, her life as well as your life. So Ian and Ian and myself and Sati had had loads of conversations around, you know, what a journey would look like to both of us and made sure we were on the right page in terms of the important things like if your child had an abnormality, you know, are you happy to continue with the pregnancy? You know, okay, if there had yeah. to be a termination, you know, like questions that you wouldn't have necessarily with your partner. Yeah. You know, if you were trying to get pregnant naturally, you wouldn't have these conversations or, you know, some of the stuff you wouldn't even think about talking about, but you have to under a surrogacy arrangement. And, you know, we did that and Fortunately, we were all on the same page and we did we did eventually match with one another and and then went on this beautiful journey whereby a year after we matched, we transferred one of my embryos that was created in 2013 yeah. um, into Ina. Um, so we, we took all 11 out of the freezer and we waited to see which was the strongest and, and, and grew them for a couple of days in the lab and, and the strongest embryo was um, transferred into her. Mm. And the remaining embryos were really sadly perished um so so we only had that one shot of of becoming parents genetically related parents um and that one shot was the one that was transferred into Ina and um you know miraculously five six days after transfer she was taking pregnancy tests and within two weeks we knew that we were pregnant with this miracle baby and beautiful thank you it was just the most wonderful moment in time when you know we could sort of breathe a bit of a sigh of relief that yeah 
you know what we've we've navigated surrogacy we've got through the fertility clinics and we've got two lines on a pregnancy stick and you know I think as soon as I you know breathed out that sigh of relief I held my breath again for the next nine months in the hope that this pregnancy successfully you know made us mum and dad because when someone else is carrying your child you know you give up all control and you give up all the romance of pregnancy you know yeah you give up so much like you're you know no matter how close you are and my my surrogates and I have always been really close you're still detached from a child that you once wanted to grow inside of you so it's you know it was by no means easy and like going through a surrogacy journey is by no means the easy option it's it's really tough and it it requires a lot of strength of character because you have to just accept as a woman who always wanted to be pregnant and give birth to her children, you just have to accept that that's not going to happen. And, you know, the bigger picture is you want to be a mum and actually this is the only way you're now ever going to become a mum to those embryos that you stuck in the freezer. So you kind of have to just go with the flow. And, you know, Ina was wonderful. She'd send me pictures of the bump and she'd send me videos of, you know, kicking tummy you know the Mm. the baby kicking her tummy and did loads of beautiful things and we had a number of private scans and we were there for all of her NHS scans and we tried you know we tried to get as close to our child as we could with the 200 miles distance between me and Ina yeah but you know we did everything we could and then wonderfully the pregnancy progressed and you know Nine months later, um, Sati and I had moved up to Bath for a couple of weeks, which is where Ina lives. And we wanted to be close to her for when she went into labour because our plan was always to be there at the birth of our child. And, you know, she she ended up needing to be induced because we had a few complications. But, you know, on the 27th of April 2018, Sati and I became parents for the first time to our beautiful daughter, Amalo, who, you know, it's like, yeah just saying her name she's my pride and my joy and she's you know she's my reason for living now you know before obviously before I always wanted to stay alive but now the moment that she came into my life I had to fight to be alive you know I'm not going anywhere you know after struggling so much to to bring her to life and she's just you know she's a miracle and she's she's the only one thing that survived from our 11 pre-chemotherapy harvested embryos and it's just so special and you know she as she grew she she just reminded me what life was you know and even to this day if I ever feel low you know just two minutes in her presence and she reminds me how important life is and you know that's powerful yeah and you know I know how fortunate I am to be a mum you know how easily it could have gone the other way and it means the world to me to be her mum and she's just healed me in ways that I didn't even know I needed healing and that's that that was Amala for you I guess and you know she's she's three years old now and she's the light of our life but okay quite quickly after having Amala realized that we wanted more children and we you know we knew it would not be straightforward especially the second time around so we knew we'd lost all our embryos um I'd spoken to my oncologist about harvesting further eggs and the advice was generally just not to do it. And once Amala was born, like I, those decisions became even more important because, you know, it was one thing to risk my life when I wasn't a parent yeah. to try and become a parent. But once I was a parent, to come off medication, 
it was just too much of a risk for me because I didn't ever want to, you know, take my child's mother away from her because I was craving a second child. This, you know, it's such a personal choice that, but for me, I couldn't do it. And, you know, with the advice that that was around me not to do it, I, you know, my husband and I decided that we would have to do something quite different if we wanted to become parents again. So we decided to look for an egg donor to create our second child. And, um, you know, anyone who listens to this who's been in the infertility circuit from a minority background will know that that's not particularly easy to do. It's quite difficult to find an egg donor of colour in the UK. Um, you know, there's there's a real shortage of minority donors. And I think part of me, you know, didn't really want to go to a donor agency where all I would get was sort of hair colour, eye colour and, you know, all of those physical attributes of a donor. I wanted a bit more. And through my sort of connections and conversations in the surrogacy community, I'd come across someone who'd looked into known egg donation and you know, it's really new concept to me, but it really interested me. So I asked them and I just said, look, what does that mean? And they said, look, it means that you can get to meet your donor. You can see pictures of them from childhood through to adulthood. And, you know, it might just give you a better view of what you're looking for in terms of a match. Yes. And I loved that idea, not only because I could physically see what this adult person looked like, but because I wasn't carrying this pregnancy and because I wouldn't have a genetic link to this child, like I wanted to have a link somewhere to this donor. You know, I knew that whoever my surrogate would be, I would be close to them much as I was with Ina. Um, And I wanted to have some sort of connection to the donor. So eventually, you know, after a lot of searching, I found an agency via a clinic. So I found a clinic in Cyprus who deal with known egg donation and they have Uh, they worked with an egg donor agency. And this agency were based in South Africa. And I'd seen the profile of a girl who was living in South Africa, who was a donor and who looked quite like me. You know, she was Indian and she had black hair and she had similar skin tone and her face shape was very similar to mine. And I thought, God, she looks like me. And I read her bio and she lived her life like me. You know, her favorite life quotes were very similar to mine. And, so much of her sort of spirituality connected with me. And I thought, God, this is like, I didn't plan to feel so connected to whoever it was whose egg we ended up using, but I feel massively connected to her. And so we put the like balls in motion to make this happen. And the, the donor in South Africa was being treated in South Africa. Um, as she sort of came close to egg collection, Sati and I booked a flight with Amala and all of us um, flew out to Cyprus, so our donor and then myself, Sati and Amala went out to meet her and we created our embryos and we froze them and we got what we expected to be 10 minutes of her time, you know, just to speak to her. And, you know, yeah. the, agent, the clinic said to me, look, you don't all have to come out like, you know, it's not necessary. And I said, look, this is not even negotiable for me. This is about a family. And, you know, we're a family of three trying to go to a family of four and I want this woman to know what she's doing for me and I want her to know how incredible I think she is and you know I want her to see the family she'll be completing so we're all going and you know we had this 10 minute chat and it rolled into three hours and three hours rolled into the next day too and we just hung out and you know I felt so fortunate to meet her and I said you know she said to me look if this ever results in a pregnancy do you mind letting me know and I said well look I will let you know and I will shout it from the rooftops because 
I think, you know, for me, having been through a surrogacy journey before an egg donation journey, I was really comfortable in the fact that sometimes you need to ask for help to become a mum. And I didn't, I've never seen it as risk. You know, I've never thought, oh, my, the surrogate might take my child or the donor might want the child. Like, I've never seen it like that because I've just got complete peace that I am my children's mother. Yeah. Like, you know, regardless of genetics, regardless of pregnancy, regardless of birth, like, I am their mum. And that's all that matters. And if a point in time comes where they want to get closer to their surrogates or my triplets want to know who their genetic mum is or genetic parents, should I say, then they can do that because none of those other figures are their mothers. I'm their mother, but those other people have played a key role in bringing them to life. Yeah, And it's important that I'm honest with my children about that and that they know about that fact. And, you know, it's never going to be a shameful thing for me. It's always about how much love went into creating them and how much will and desire went into creating them that's the that's the most important thing that's beautiful so yeah and and like I'm fully aware that I come from a community where my route to motherhood is really extraordinary it's sometimes unaccepted it's not spoken about um I guess the words stigma and taboo come to mind I'm you know I'm just one girl who went on this extraordinary route to find her children and who did find her children and who wants to shout it from the rooftops because it's the most beautiful thing in the world and I think you know we can keep talking about how negative some of our communities are towards accepting these alternate routes to parenthood or we can just shout about the positive stories and wake people up to the fact that there is no shame here this is all about the beauty of you know people coming together to make dreams come true and that's all that matters to me you know I don't I don't really care if someone does think I've done the wrong thing or if someone has an opinion on how I've become a mum because their opinion is none of my business like yeah their opinions aren't valid what's important is how you feel you know yeah exactly and and what works for you and your family exactly and like and I just hope that more people find that strength and ability to do that because it's just a wonderful, wonderful route to parenthood. So, you know, I digress and, we, you know, we, we created these embryos and put them in the freezer in Cyprus this time and came back to England. And my, my surrogate who'd carried Amala and had a change in her circumstance and, you know, she had always hoped to carry our sibling journey for us, but was unable to. So I found myself back on surrogacy forums in the September of um, 2019. Yeah thinking it could take yeah and it had taken a while to meet you know and I thought oh god this you know I'm older now and this is going to take longer and you know am I you know am I going to need another one or two years before before I even match with someone um but in the time between sort of my first child and the second journey I'd launched my own podcast and and it's all about surrogacy it's called the intended parent and you know I'd really been advocating surrogacy just because purely I'm so in love with it of course and um and I guess you know the community they they knew that and so you know when I needed a surrogate a lot of my friends in the community were I guess championing me and just saying to other surrogates that you know what if you're looking for a match like these guys are a beautiful couple and you know we would love you know love to introduce you so that's exactly what happened so one of my friends who is a surrogate introduced me to a lady called Laura and um, Laura had been a surrogate before and she was looking to go on another journey and I you know I started talking to her 
And I think because we had a mutual friend, we found it really easy to trust one another because we knew that we wouldn't be introduced. If our mutual friend thought we weren't right, she would never have gone there. So so having that introduction meant meant so much to me and having that mutual um, person that we could both trust was really lovely to have. And Laura and I got close very quickly and within a few months, well, within two months of talking, we met up. And we just sat in a bar and we were just talking and talking and talking about, you know, journeys and what was important to us. And um, we went, you know, we briefly touched on, you know, agreement points and what were deal breakers for us. And again, we were quite aligned. Um, but what happened with my second journey was like I had more confidence as well as someone who'd been through this process once before. Like I had a real sort of the first time around, I think, you know, I was probably a bit of someone who would just say yes, 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 yes to anything because I was yeah. so desperate to to find a match. And, you know, maybe I maybe I would sort of be more flexible than I was the second time around. The second time around, I knew what was important to me. And I just said to Laura, like, I feel more experienced and, you know, this is how I feel about X, Y, and Z. And it was nice that we were both experienced because actually we had some really honest conversations really early on without worrying about hurting each other's feelings because we just knew they had to be had. And yeah. you know, we formed a really strong relationship within a couple of months. Um, in the January of 2020, Sati met Laura um, and we all continued to talk and just got on really well. And we matched with her officially in January. And then I'd said to her, how about we go to Cyprus in April? Um, you know, that'll give us a bit more time to get sort of flights booked. And, you know, in a joking but not so joking way, I was like, the sun will be shining. So at least we'll get some good weather. And like, you know, <laughs> we can, you know, we can have a little bit of um, a good time whilst we're out there as well. And she was like, oh, that sounds great. But um, I would really like to go a bit earlier because I don't particularly want to be heavily pregnant over Christmas and I thought oh yeah okay fine that you know I get that that's probably really frustrating being really pregnant with someone else's baby just as you kind of (laughs) celebrate Christmas with your family so I said yeah sure what were you thinking and she goes well it sounds a bit crazy but what would you think about February and I was like that's next month and she said look I know my cycles inside out and I can do everything I need to in terms of like letting the clinic know what meds I need and what day of my cycle we're on and stuff because I'm really fine with doing that if you think you can do the logistics of it and I was like well do you know what I can do that I can you know book flights book a hotel I could do whatever we need to do to get out to Cyprus I can let the clinic know and you know get all of that sort of admin done so we went for it and we planned everything and we got on a plane just I think it was the 13th of February we got on a plane and you know went to Cyprus and and we over the next few days sort of had scans and checks and you know transferred our embryos into her and we transferred two at this point in time so um we'd been lucky enough to harvest um seven embryos uh from our donor cycle yeah and then we decided we would transfer two into laura so we had two embryos on one straw which means that in the freezer if you take one out the other one's either going to get used or it's going to be perished so yeah we'd spoken with laura and um, in quite a lot of detail about how many eggs she would have transferred embryos she would have transferred into her because we knew uh, the other thing is we knew we were going overseas so you don't want to waste that, yeah, that transfer and then you've got to go back and call the flights and all of that stuff again. So, you know, we've had conversations about if we transfer two and two take and we have a twin pregnancy, like, is she happy to carry twins? Are Sati and I happy to raise twins? You know, yeah. we've always had those conversations and we were all totally happy with that. So we transferred two embryos into Laura 
we came home and within a few days she took some pregnancy tests again and you know within five days she she told me that we were pregnant and you know we couldn't I just couldn't really believe our luck that again you know we'd fallen pregnant the first time round. Yeah and what great timing with the pandemic and getting out there before the lockdown and all of that. Exactly that and I find that so divine like you know I'm, yeah. I'm I'm massively spiritual and I believe that everything happens for a reason. And, you know, in my head, I've been gunning for April 2020. And like, you know, thank God Laura said to me, she doesn't want to be pregnant at Christmas because yeah. <laughs> that, yeah, that one conversation, you know, is the difference between me being, you know, a, a mum for the second time and me not yeah. being a mum for the second time. So, you know, the, as soon as, just like you say, you know, once we found out we were pregnant, I think it was a matter of a week or two before COVID really hit the UK. And, yeah. you know, before what would have been on our, her March cycle, borders were closed and travel wasn't happening. And yeah, we would never have got back out there to try again or to get pregnant if we had done the first, you know, gone the first time um, a bit yeah. later. So you know I believe it was always meant to be and we were always meant to go and have that transfer in February and a few weeks later Laura phoned me she'd been at hospital and had a scan that we, we knew she was having a, a six-week um, early early scan just because she'd had some abdominal pain and we wanted to make sure she was okay so she went in for this early scan and you know we were just hoping that she would be okay because she'd been rushed yeah. into hospital and she rang me and she just said are you sitting down and I said yeah 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 are you okay or you know I was just worried about her health thinking god yeah you know I just want to make sure she's okay and you know don't, I don't want her to be going through an ectopic pregnancy which is what the fear was and or, you know, my worst fear was having lot that, that she's going to call me to tell me we've lost these babies. So yeah. the minute she said to me, sit down, I thought, oh my gosh, she's going to tell me they're gone. She's going to tell me they're yeah. gone. And I said, are you, she just said, don't swear. And I said, oh gosh, what is she going to say? And then she just turns around and she goes, you're having triplets. <laughs> oh my. And I did swear. I was like, oh my effing God, like, what the hell? And I was like, I thought you were going to tell me that we've lost the babies. She goes, you haven't lost any babies. You've gained, like, you've got three <laughs> babies inside my stomach. And honest to God, like, I think it took me, like, two hours to process that conversation. It was really difficult. I was just like, I can't believe we're having this conversation. You know, we'd, we'd spoken about twins, but no one at any point yeah. in time told me the risk of, like, one of our embryos splitting to give us, like, identical twins plus one so yeah that's where we wound up and we you know we had to have some serious conversations obviously you know it was high risk for it was a high risk pregnancy for Laura yeah we had to make sure she was happy to carry these babies and she had to you know we had to make sure that Sati and I were happy to raise these babies and yeah you know again fortunately we were all on the same page and you know once we knew we were having triplets oh my god you know of course, Satya and I thought, geez, that's going to be hard. But we never could have contemplated reducing our pregnancy, you know, just got, yeah. despite what the doctors were telling us. And we were told time after time, reduce this pregnancy, reduce this pregnancy. It's too high risk. And yeah, none of us were having it. You know, Laura wasn't having it. Me and Satya weren't having it. Like, if these children were destined to be, they were going to be. And, yeah. you know, we were open with each other. And, you know, Laura and I often said, look, if nature takes its course, if nature says that one of them isn't viable or, you know, one of them is lost, then that's fine. That's nature and God's will. But we're not going to manually go in there and remove one of these potential children because that is, yeah. you know, we don't have the right to do that. So we 
continued with the pregnancy and it was a very different pregnancy to my pregnancy with Ina and Amala because we were so distant from Laura um more so because of COVID you know we weren't allowed yeah. to see her we weren't allowed yeah. to yeah and, you know I think the first time around I took so much comfort in seeing Ina and feeling the bump and just having that connection and that physical time in her space but we had none of that with Laura yeah and um, and that was tough you know everything was done via, via video call and all of her scan results she would sort of text me or whatsapp me or you know just just keep me digitally up to date with what was going on but that was really difficult you know having a pregnancy through surrogacy in the middle of a pandemic is bizarre um you know to the point of when the government said that you know partners weren't allowed into scans it, it never accounted for someone who was having a child through surrogacy because you know okay. mums were going to scans without the dad of their children but what about mums who weren't going to their baby scans because they weren't carrying their babies like that person wasn't really considered mm-hmm. and that was difficult for us um I, I missed the 12 week scan and you know yeah. not only because of the way the COVID rules were going but because of my own risk of catching COVID you know I was living with heart disease and there there were serious conversations about you know how COVID affected people who had cardiac conditions so I was scared you know to my wits end to leave and leave my house because I thought god I can't catch this disease like I can't catch COVID because yeah I'm about to be a mum again and you know I have to I have to stick around for that and you know the last thing I want is for my heart failure to to be the end of me because I catch COVID. So I protected myself a lot. Um, but I did go to the 20-week scan yeah. because I thought, God, if I don't go to this scan, I potentially won't see these children in her tummy. Um, we like we'd spent the whole pregnancy knowing it was high risk. So I was like, you know, if we lose one in childbirth and I haven't been to the 20-week scan, I would have never seen them. Yeah. So so I went to that 20-week scan and just to be in Laura's presence was was wonderful and to have time with her was just beautiful and seeing the babies on screen was just, you know, awe-inspiring. And, I, you know, I came home and I told Sati all about it and then we made a decision. Things were opening up. It was coming through towards the summer, um, the summer of 2020, when things were opening up and private scanning facilities were open so we decided to book a private scan so that Sati could see the babies because he would not be allowed in yeah he would not be allowed to an NHS appointment we decided to book a private scan so he could see them and we just went up a day in July we went up to see Laura in Northampton and you know he saw the babies on screen we took Amala with us because we wanted her to see her brothers well we didn't know they were her brothers but we wanted her to see the bump and we wanted her to get to know Laura a bit better so she came up with us and she was wonderful, you know, and I think actually seeing Laura pregnant with her siblings has made it really easy for me to tell Amala how she was born because she now yeah. gets that, she, that the babies were grown in someone else's tummy. So it was lovely, yeah. you know, she just would come home and said, oh, my babies are in Lawler's tummy, my my babies, my brother and my sister's <laughs> It's just the most cutest thing ever. And, and, and that was, you know, a magical day for us. And it was the last time we saw Laura pregnant and, uh, you know, in August, the end of August, the 23rd of August, I got a call from Laura in the early hours of the morning and she just said, Queen of the babies are coming. Um, or not that calmly, I have to say. And it's three o'clock in the morning and I was just like, what the hell? Like, we are only at 30 weeks at this point. So, you know, we, we knew that we, we we would never get a full term with our babies, but, yeah. you know, for them to, for Laura to go to labour at 30 weeks was really worrying because 
the risk of losing one of our babies was just that much higher with her going into labor so early. Yeah. Um, but she went into labor. Um, we we rallied up to Northampton. We had some real issues with COVID and not being allowed in to see the children when they were first born um, because we weren't COVID tested and we weren't seen to be the baby's parents. So we were asked to wait um, for 12 hours before we could get to be with them. But we eventually got to them and um, we got to Laura and, you know, held her hand and, you know, obviously thanked her eternally for 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 what she had done and yeah you know we were told that we had three children and then that all three of them had made it and then Laura told us that it was three boys and honestly I couldn't hold back the tears in that moment because yeah to be blessed with not you know we went on the second extreme route to parenthood to have one child and somehow Again, we defied the odds and, you know, we'd gone against the doctor's wishes to reduce the pregnancy and we just stuck to our guns. And there we were now, like parents to three more children. And, you know, even now it blows my mind that I have triplet sons. Yeah, The odds of it ever happening, they're just bonkers, you know, and they're just, again, like Amala, you know, my boys just taught me so much and they're born, you know, they're born through donor conception. And I guess I have always had a fear, you know, and definitely that girl who went into the oncology room, fit, afraid of losing her fertility. I had this fear that, you know, what if I don't connect to these children because they're not genetically mine? Or, you know, if I don't harvest my eggs, how will I ever become a mum? And like, here I am with these three gorgeous baby boys. And they just teach me that motherhood can come in so many different shapes and sizes. And, you know, what are preconceptions of what parenthood is are sometimes wrong and you know life will teach us that and life will tell you that there are other ways to to fulfill your dreams and you know for me thanks to a donor and thanks to two wonderful surrogates I sit here today a mum of four something that you know my 33 year old self really questioned when she was told that she had cancer yeah and I think you know many many people who listen to that will have those same fears and concerns you know not everyone gets to preserve their fertility before chemo not everyone gets to egg harvest or embryo harvest you know and I thought that if I couldn't do that 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 was all hope gone but I just sort of want to say to that person who doesn't get that opportunity that it doesn't mean all the doors are closed because you know what you don't have to have a genetic link to your child to be their parent I don't have any genetics I don't share genetics with my triplets but I don't love them at all less than I love Amala, you know, Mm -hmm. I'd give my all for any of my four children. So I guess, you know, it's been a a crazy journey and, you know, the triplets were in neonatal for eight weeks. And what was bizarrely wonderful about that neonatal experience was that they, you know, if they'd stayed to full term with Laura, you know, the babies would stay in her tummy until, you know, like Amala did until 40 weeks and, you know, the baby arrives and you bring her, that child home and you go from a point of no child to 24-7, you've got a child. Yeah. But what happened with the boys, because they were in hospital for so long, what happened was Laura gave birth and then what would have been their final trimester in her care came to a final trimester in my care. Yeah. And looking after the boys in those Perspex boxes, to me, was the closest I will ever get to pregnancy. And every time I went into the neonatal unit and I fed them through a tube or I held them in my arms or I just 
sat with my hand on their head, mm. I just said to myself, this is your version of pregnancy. You know, this is your chance to nurture them yeah. before they come home to you. And I now see that experience as something really positive and something wonderful because you know, believe you me, it was scary, you know, three babies and three incubators on all these machines with all these, you know, wires and beepings. And, you know, we obviously really, really prayed that we would bring all three of them home. And there was, there was always an element of fear that something would go wrong with one of them. Yeah. But that fear was sort of overpowered by the love, you know, and, and that mental sort of mindset that I just decided to instill really early on and just said, you know what, this is your chance to nourish them before they come into the big wide world, you know, and when you put your hand on their head in that perspex box, imagine that you're just putting your hand on your stomach and they're hearing you and feeling you and knowing that you're there and like, this is your time to connect, you know, mm. in a way that you wouldn't get to connect if you were pregnant with your child. So, you know, it's, it's just been, it's been really difficult, but it's been wonderful at the same time. And, you know, I'm definitely someone who always tries to find the positive in life and like who likes to live from a place of hope and grace and, you know, a belief that everything will be okay and everything happens for a reason, as cliched as that sounds. Mm -hmm. But having been through and lived this roller coaster of, you know, cancer, heart failure, infertility, surrogacy, egg donation, and now under my roof are these four magical children. Mm -hmm. I can't, I can't say that, you know, that I regret any of it because if any of it went differently, I wouldn't be here today. So yeah. it had to play out in the way that it's played out. And, you know, I, I think the lowest of the lows helped me appreciate the highest of the highs. And that's just us, you know, as a family, we're just insanely grateful for, for where it's all turned out to, you know, the end that we've managed to find for ourselves. And, I guess it's not the end. This is just the beginning, but it's the yeah. end. Of, I feel it's the end of the chapter of, you know, of real grief. I feel like that's hopefully behind us now. And from here, it's all about making memories with our wonderful children. Yes. What an incredible, and I mean, incredible journey that you've been on. Um, so many lows, so many highs, like truly, like I'm literally gobsmacked by everything that you've said it's been such an experience for you and your your family and mm. I just I gotta say I feel like you're a mind reader as well every question I had yeah you literally <laughs> you just answered it I was like I don't even need to answer the question <laughs> I was like you got all the answers right there <laughs> oh yeah. I'm, you know what I'm awful I like I'm literally I, you can't stop me talking once you start there's <laughs> no stopping <laughs> oh god but no we appreciate you so much for coming on to this show and i know so many women are really going to find value in everything that you've said um oh, yes yeah, so we're so grateful where can people find you so um i guess the best the best place to find me is on instagram so i am at Krina demand and that's what you know you'll you'll find most of my story there um or you could go to my website which is www.kreenademand.com um or for the surrogacy side of my story and um all things surrogacy um i'm at the intended parent thank you so much it's been an absolute pleasure and i hope you have a lovely evening looking after all your four children <laughs> <laughs> but yeah thank, thank you. you so much
Thank you. Bye. Bye.